Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC podcast. This is Dennis and today I'm talking with uh, Dr. Mark Shapiro on resilience and teamwork during this COVID-19 pandemic. Hey Mark, how's it going? Hey Dennis, uh, it's going well. Thank you for inviting me back. Um, I think kind of the way I was looking at it is, you know, at least for the most part, I think, you know, as a civilian uh, medical system, like things like resiliency isn't really built into it because they don't have like a selection process for high stress situations. I don't think, I don't think anyway, versus, you know, the military and special operations, you're just hammered until they figure out can you stand it or not um but i don't think that they have that on the medical side in the civilian world anyway um so how do you deal with people of the entire spectrum i'm sure of people who are just you know hardened like a diamond and you have all these you know fuzzy bunnies on the other side of the spectrum how do you get everybody through something like this, you know? Yeah, uh, I'm really glad you brought that up, Dennis, because uh, I'm seeing the same thing. And um, I'm wondering what my experience uh, would have been if I didn't have this special relationship with, uh, you know, special operations and and working with the good folks at Ragged Edge, for instance, and, and actually developing the medical proficiency training at the institutions I've been, meaning I've been exposed to elements of their training and, uh, and found it uh, fascinating and actually have used uh, some of the um, principles in, in selection in working with the residents. Uh, a couple hours or, or, or a, an entire morning isn't going to provide that type of insight or that type of training, but it does expose the residents to why uh, resilience is important. So um, in the civilian world, um, developing a, 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 uh, a, um, a classroom uh, or a wet lab uh, to identify um, stress and how to deal with it and what kind of stresses they may encounter um, might go against the ACGME, which is the governing body uh, for, for training, meaning that um, this is not something developed by PhDs and we don't get consent and, uh, you know, it's potentially uh, stressful for these uh, trainees and um, that could provide exposure to myself for um, exposing trainees to stresses that they wouldn't normally encounter. Um, uh, so uh, I have to be very careful uh, so that I am not, uh, you know, legally bound to, uh, to go through some type of formal uh, consent. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so uh, things that I've done are to, um, to, to make them make some moral and ethical choices under 
some stressful situations, doing puzzles and so forth, and developing communication uh, under timed events. And, and some of these events are mildly physical. Uh, there's no shouting, there's no name calling or anything like that. Uh, nothing like that could happen in the civilian world without severe penalty. And uh, so it's not, it's not, uh, it, it's parallel maybe to, to some of the uh, duress that, that you may experience in selection and so forth. But again, in the end, it's going to last. And in the end, they know that um, the, the uh, instructors are not allowed to hurt their feelings or anything like that because then there's uh, retaliation and so on and so forth. What I have found is that some of these uh, trainees, though, um, handle this type of duress exceedingly well. Yeah. And in fact, some of them enjoy it and appreciate it and have written uh, uh, to their program director saying we need more of these things. So although you can teach resilience and there's books and classes and courses on teaching uh, resilience, um, that is not part of the curriculum uh, for anybody that I've ever seen in the civilian world. It certainly wasn't uh, for me, it wasn't for uh, my trainees at any of the academic institutions, uh, you know, public or private, uh, that I've been at. And that's unfortunate because, at least in surgery and definitely in trauma surgery, uh, you encounter very, very stressful situations. And how you deal with those, I have seen the, the gamut of responses, both in attendings and residents. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's very, very important to identify these people and the people that don't uh, have that resilience to either teach them, allow them, guide them, or direct them into either some type of training or maybe they would do better in a different profession. Right. I mean, and the only way to, to find out is to put somebody to the test. Um, that's what I think. My my guess is in today's day and age, um, you know, I, I would suspect that you'd have to get uh, consent and and all kinds of things prior to doing something like that, uh, because we're just in that age where, um, you know, you're subject to all kinds of risk, meaning litigation, meaning uh you know career uh right. changing um yeah <laughs> appointments and so on and so forth so yeah right i mean and obviously i've never been i mean i'm not a real doctor nor um uh, ever claim to be but you know i imagine there's many situations where there's er the icu the surgery uh suite you know you have very stressful situations split second decision making uh with you know fatal consequences for somebody um and that's kind of a routine or a fairly routine thing it's not it's not an uncommon thing to have happen in those situations but i think what is different between maybe those situations is that they're probably somewhat short-lived like the situation happens you made a decision, either good or bad, and whatever the outcome was, 
you know, will be sorted out in the in a few hours, right, or more or less. Versus... Well, perhaps let me let me share with you a couple of examples as to where I think um, either resilience or some type of stress inoculation or um, or uh, the ability to deal with stressful situations has made a difference. Mm -hmm. And I can share with you kind of on both ends. Um, one, uh, many surgeons, certainly not all of them, but many surgeons feel most comfortable in the operating room. You've got uh, nurses, techs, um, of various skill levels, but by and large, uh, they, they may know the conduct of the trauma and operation to ensue they may not, but uh, but regardless, they, they generally know the instruments and and they can expect um, uh, certain types of, of language, hand signals, things like that that um, will allow uh, a good operation to to happen, and um, um, and and they're used to uh, kind of short curt answers and stuff like that. And um, and they won't not, they won't always argue uh, with the surgeon what to do. There there certainly are um, you know nurses and residents you know tra trainees and so forth which will uh, push back um, what the um, you know what goes on in an operating room uh, and 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 you know what's needed and so on and so forth. Um, and that that also involves a fair amount of stress, but 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 it's a lot easier for the surgeon to make these decisions in an operating room uh, versus the emergency room where it can you know feel like a very austere environment. They certainly don't have the the support that you do in the emergency department as you would in the operating room. Mm -hmm. And uh, some uh, you know big trauma centers can convert a ER to an operating room. And that certainly uh, facilitates the care of these patients. Uh, but in the end, I, I would agree with you, there's the human element. And that human element um, can turn a very chaotic uh, resuscitation into a much more calm one. Now, where, where it gets uh, important uh, to, to, to make the classification of stressful or not, um, again is the experience and uh, the um, situational awareness of the person conducting that resuscitation whether it goes to a, an operation or not and what i've seen in the past is that um, those who uh, are stressed and have uh, challenges dealing with that may make those patients um, or may, may uh, declare those patients uh, either expectant non-operative uh, or um, choose to consult other subspecialties uh, to uh, take over. Mm. And those other subspecialties may not even be close, and that will ultimately lead to, you know, may ultimately lead to the patient's demise. Right. So I've seen that in the civilian world. Uh, you know, they'll see a bloody gunshot or they'll see something that there's a lot of blood go uh, loss and that looks very uh, traumatic. That looks very lethal, uh, but it's just blood loss, and the operation required to treat that uh, can can actually be handled quite simply. Uh, whether it's a, a laparotomy, whether it's a tourniquet and a vascular repair, 
Um, all of these things are, um, uh, these scenarios have played out in the civilian theater. Mm-hmm. Now, in the military training, I've also been uh, exposed to um, the the trauma surgeon, if you will. Uh, but uh, I think that's a really hot topic right now. Uh, a trauma surgeon is just kind of a almost a what a colloquialism because some of these trauma surgeons are, you know, they may be vascular surgeons, urologists, gynecologists, uh, playing the role of trauma surgeon in the military. And they may not be best suited. And these patients, uh, uh, I'm sorry, these uh, surgeons may quickly declare that these patients are uh, unsurvivable. And they may blame it on resource limitations. They may, they may, they may make these declarations um, very early without affording uh, their patients um, at least some type of ex- exploration and resuscitation and further evaluation. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think the, the stress of the, the trauma and the lack of experience of the surgeon um, has led to arguably uh, more patients being declared unsurvivable. And, and so uh, that's a very long-winded answer as to why uh, desensitization uh, or learning how to deal with be, be, becoming resilient, learning how to become resilient is super important. Right. So, I mean, and as you know, with present day, we're going through COVID-19, uh, the pandemic, and it's not just a single patient that's difficult and you're having to make very important decisions and reactions to it's a endless wave of patients who are swamping our medical systems. Before another situation like that happens or a um, natural disaster or, or what have you, you know, how do we, on the civilian side and the military side, especially special operations side, we've kind of figured it out. We're just going to hit you over the head until we figure out, can you handle the stress or can you not? But how on the civilian side can you expose, you know, these uh, these are um, young residents, young nurses, you know, I guess learners in the medical field. You know, how can you integrate this uh, stress inoculation into the educational system while still running that line of, um, I guess, conduct? on the in the civilian medical side um i I don't know the answer to that dennis but i can share with you what i do and it seems to work well Mm -hmm. um and i do a couple of things and again this is all borrowed from chapters uh from your life and uh in your training so um yes there are patients uh with covid19 who i uh talk about inoculation no pun intended, uh, but I've been uh, in the midst of that in uh, in a hospital in New Jersey. And uh, at least uh, initially uh, when COVID-19 was ramping up, there were a tremendous amount of deaths and hospitalizations and codes all night and uh, rapid response uh, team uh, uh, activations. And... Um, 
I think I think it's it's uh, trying to get to know your team mm-hmm. and uh, having that situational awareness where after one or two resuscitations, you're taking account of who's there and how they're reacting. Some people are good at compartmentalization. Some people are not. Some people weep, uh, and um, and some people uh, get angry and frustrated. So uh, after every death. Uh, I, uh, you know, had a pause. Um, I wanted to make sure that uh, our team and the team being residents, nurses, uh, respiratory therapists, all the people that respond to these codes understand that there's something to learn from every patient. The, the, no, no death should be taken in vain. No death is... Uh, it's just a, a, a curiosity or a simple event. We, we need to think about it. So we pause, uh, you know, we reflect. Some people can pray, some people can just think. Uh, and once, uh, once that, you know, 30 to 45 seconds are over, um, we clean up and we meet and have a debriefing. And we discuss uh, what elements of it went well, what elements uh, didn't go well. Almost at all of these uh, um, activations, uh, there's a senior nurse there, and I communicate with that senior nurse. And some of these uh, codes uh, end very quickly in asystole, and some of them, you know, we uh, reach futility in a matter of, you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, and those get called. And I ask the nurse to take account of her team. Uh, the nurses and techs to uh, get back with me, give me feedback, uh, because some of these patients are family members of uh, the nurses and and physicians, and some of them are just friends. Some people they've worked with for you know months to years, and if we call it, if they if the senses we're calling these things too short, or we don't give them our best shot, or we we go beyond that and um, go into heroic measures where maybe we shouldn't be working so hard on these folks and letting them pass with some dignity. So, so I work, I work with the uh, leadership to get that feedback so that I'm not um, pushing the limits of the team so that at the next code, the next day, we're all working together. uh, They're not crumbling. Mm-hmm. So, uh, right or wrong, I think there is a constant tabulation, if you will, or account of, uh, accounting right. of where the where the team is. Okay. And to, and to give them give them an outlet, you know, everybody grieves differently, right. uh, and everybody's allowed to grieve in their own way, uh, but we can't have disruptive grievement, and. Uh, and so I've had to, you know, take some people aside and just kind of listen to them. And whether it's tearful or they're angry or they wish a code ran differently, they're all allowed to have their say. Right. Yeah, I think that's very helpful. Um, just from my experience on on the teams, um, you know, there's definitely a rank structure, but that can be a little fluid at times, if you know what I mean. Um, depending on what went wrong, it's the team. And yes, there is a leader of the team, but 
sometimes, uh, you know, leaders can make mistakes too, especially on the officer side. And um, well, uh, I think there's a, there's a, an important point for your listeners um, that, uh, and my guess is this is more preaching to the choir because they're your listeners. Uh, but one of the things that I've encountered going to a completely different hospital and environment is that the selection of the intensivists uh, is a little lax because it is a crisis. Hmm. And uh, talk about hurting a, a, a team dynamic um, and not having that situational awareness. There are some surgeons from some uh, very uh, high-profile places that are acting as intensivists that are really struggling with the lack of resources, both human and uh, hardware, software, you know, uh, drugs, machines, and so forth. And they expect to be delivering, you know, high quality care as they would at some of these, um, again, high profile institutions. And, and they're really the wrong person to have uh at, at these places uh or or any crisis uh, mm -hmm. because either they're you know used to consulting people who do things that they don't do or they're maybe they're not used to um the type of adversity uh that uh, everybody's facing when you run out of um you know common um resuscitative medications pressors and and so forth and adapting is not uh, part of their uh, repertoire, if you will. Mm -hmm. So, so I think you know we could also do a better job of having that type of selection uh, because it, it just destroys a team. Oh, and of course. When I, come, when I come in and and hear that they you know everybody's afraid of working with Doctor So and So, uh, or they've had enough of. Factors, you know, they find it hard to function, and that that that's you know, the you know, demoralizing. So, uh, again, uh, the selection process that you guys go through is so important, right? Oh, that we don't the 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 civilian side just doesn't see. Right, I think that they look as a as an individual achievements more than as a team. I mean, I'm just guessing. But that's like where I would see things like that happening is looking at an individual versus how do they integrate into a team. Yeah. But I mean, during a pandemic like this, I mean, you're getting people from everywhere just to fill positions, you know, where you, you, you are. Um, and and, and uh, the interesting thing is some people are attracted to uh, the uh, reimbursement, the monetary side of it. Yeah. And again, probably the wrong type of person you want. Uh, you know, I don't, my understanding is, is that, you know, an E7 is an E7 and E6 is an E6. And, uh, you know, you may get some hazard pay, uh, but I don't know anybody that signs up uh, to work in special operations uh, does that for for a pay uh, increase, <laughs> and uh, and so some people are saying yes they can and yes they do and and they may look uh, either you know have a nice pedigree or look good on paper or have a certificate, uh, but this is not the time to to uh, 
sign up if you're not prepared for working in such I'll say uh, asymmetric conditions. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got you've got you've got ICU nurses that are used to having one or two patients at most, and now they're caring for four or five. And you've got floor nurses who know nothing about managing pressers and and so forth. And yet, uh, the step down units and the PACU and the ED uh, is now turned into an ICU uh, because they're taking care of critically ill patients on the ventilator. And uh, and these there's no place to transfer them to. All the hospitals are full, and you either let them die or you give it your best shot. And the, some of these nurses are truly heroes because they're working uh, above and beyond uh, some of their scopes, and they're really being pushed hard. Right. So I mean, I imagine within I guess within a team, you know, I'm let's say working in the ICU where wherever you're working. Within a team, you have both experienced and non-experienced ICU nurses. Would that be correct? Yeah, I think that's. And so, I think that way, you can kind of spread the experience out a little bit farther, augment the numbers with somebody who's less experienced, either because they're in a step down or in a med surge unit, or they're brand new. And that way you have more of the experienced people being able to educate and train and overwatch the the lesser experienced. Is that is that what's happening? Uh, that's that's happening to some degree. Uh, I worked with a nurse the other night who had no experience, mm. and uh, she was she was hurting. She was crumbling, and and uh, and and I'll be honest with you. This is I'm learning. Uh, and I've had to change my speed and I've had to correct or, or alter or modify some of my expectations and the way I, uh, work with these folks. And, and, you know, there's a lot to say about positive reinforcement, right? This nurse who was giving me everything she had and, and she really didn't have the, she didn't have much, but she was a, she was a good person. She tried. Everything I asked for, she did the best that she could, and I recognize that. And I can tell you that at the end of the night, while we were taking care of this incredibly sick and actually young uh, patient, uh, they were they were still alive. Uh, but she was there was just nothing left in her tank, mm-hmm. and uh, I could tell as I was uh, praising her efforts because uh, that's really what we're doing. We're praising the effort, not the outcome. Um, you know, she started to get a little weepy, and I knew that she couldn't talk. If she, if she were to talk, she would have just bawled right there in the unit. And she understood the importance of composure. And, and so I backed off, and I just, you know, kind of said thank you, made sure she was okay, and, uh, you know, did my short, you're awesome. If you need anything, you know, I'm available. I got to go, you know, do something. Right. And then I went to the charge nurse, and I said, please go back and check on her. She needs your help. We can't have her quit because again, there are, there are quitters. There's plenty of quitters. Yeah. Uh, for for whatever reason, you know. Uh, but 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 she went back and she checked in on her. And, and to those folks who, you know, and I said quitters. To those folks who just can't handle it, uh, I think that's that's good mm-hmm. uh, that they walk away. We do not need a dysfunctional person, and I think we need to identify those people quickly. Because the last thing you need is somebody who, who in a crisis, uh, can't perform to, you know, to some level. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, and, yeah. uh, and, and it's not that they should walk away in shame. It's just that, you know, we, we found, uh, that they, they're not best for this, this team. There's probably somewhere where they can excel, uh, but this is not the place or the time. Right. Right. Um, but I mean, you know, where you are, where you are working right now, you know, yeah. You receive a, you re, maybe you receive a new person or you come on and shift and you have a team and it is what it is. Um, you know, how, I guess, because it's, it's one thing to be resilient for a code. Okay. Let's say it, it lasts 30 minutes. It was really tough. It sucked. We made a lot of decisions and then it, it ended good or bad. It ended. It's another thing to just, have code after code and patient after patient and resources are going down you're getting stuff occasionally things are running out you're having to switch but this this constant grind you know what i mean yeah so somebody at some point somebody's you're gonna break even though you're the you are the right person you're gonna break i guess how how do you organize the shifts of people because somebody like everybody just has a bad day. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so how do you say like, okay, this person, they're kind of just saturated. They're not, they're not, uh, doing their best that I know that they can do. You know, how do I, how do you, do you switch them out? Do you, like, how so, do you handle that? Yeah. I don't, I don't know that we've actually figured that out for, the physician side uh, here's here's kind of what i'm what i'm curious about in some ways and this is this is very harsh and this is very cruel this is an opinion in my observation but in some ways you're playing with house money uh-huh. and that's the, the cruel part of it you're getting uh folks from uh different institutions who are answering the call to service, they go there and they may or may not be invested in the community. They are there for one shift or maybe they're there for a dozen shifts. Maybe they're there for more. I don't know. Uh, and, uh, and I don't know that they're there. I don't know that everybody is, um, has an emotional tie to their patients or the community. The, these these patients, you know, may die, you may lose two or three or four or five a night. Mm-hmm. Um, it's getting better. Uh, so so uh, as far as the physicians, I, I can't speak to that because I don't I don't see I haven't seen that element of burnout in this yet. Right. Um, I think some of us, uh, you know, may, may have composure. Some of us understand the compartmentalization and that in these 12 hour shifts, they've got 12 hours to go to their room, their, you know, go home or get in their car and have a moment. Um, you know, myself, uh, you know, I had a four and a half hour drive home and, and it went by pretty quickly. You know, I, 
I replayed some of the folks that we lost and, you know, how I could have uh, conducted the resuscitations differently. And although I think with this COVID, it's just uh, the, the folks that die, they die very, very rapidly. There's not, we don't have a lot of people who are, are lingering. We probably have half a dozen patients who are still on the ventilator and uh they've been on the ventilator for you know two weeks now mm -hmm. there's not that many um there are patients who get sick and and get better over a period of days uh we've been unable we've transferred two patients on uh, the past um oh three weeks or so 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 we're really not transferring patients out they're either getting better or they're di or, or they're dying very few are kind of decaying and and there are a couple patients that we wish uh, they had a better uh, better run. The families um, are are still pushing to for a miracle, mm -hmm. and those are those are hard. Right. I mean, patients who are just sloughing uh, and dying are just it's it's hard. On, that's what's hard on the staff. The folks that come in and die pretty rapidly, uh, you know, it's it's bad. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that they're they're not the ones that I think are making people suffer. Right. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Just having lack, not having lots of time to get attached to a patient. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I talked when I talked to families, you know, I, one of the things, there's a few things that I say to try and help them through it. Number one is you're not sentencing them to life and you're not sentencing them to death. You may have had a conversation with your family member uh, in the past and they said, oh, I remember Uncle Bob who's on that breathing machine. Don't ever do that to me. Or maybe they said, you know, hey, if I'm ever like Uncle Bob, you fight for me and make sure they do everything I can. And then, you know, it's their job to to share that information. We talk about doing things uh, for the patient and doing things to the patient. And some point, sometimes we just do things to the patient, but it is, it's not going to change the outcome. And uh, I try and help them through that thought process. Right. I think there's wrong, wrongful life. I think there's wrongful death. Mm. And, uh, and uh, sometimes doing some of these things to the patient is, in my eyes, isn't, isn't the right thing to do, but I try not to pass my value system uh, to a, a family member who, who may not see things the same way until uh, many of us agree it's futile. There are centers uh, who, uh, during this crisis, uh, have said, you know, if two physicians agree it's futile, uh, they have the ability to remove them from all types of life support. I don't know how often that's practiced. I don't know the circumstances. I haven't seen it happen. Uh, it's been discussed a number of times for some patients. Mm. And this crisis has brought that to a head and, uh, because it's a teleological decision, right? right. Uh, there's many people that we can save, and uh, there's people that we're not saving because this one patient who's been here for you know days to weeks is, is really sucking up the resources. Right. For, for a really a, a dismal outcome. Mm -hmm. so. Um, so having going, going currently going through this experience, um, what do you hope our medical system learns from this? Hopefully it ends very soon, but 
I mean, there's there's always going to be a something, either a natural disaster, a pandemic, a whatever. What do you hope the medical system learns and changes going forward? Well, I think there's a whole lot of things uh, from the political standpoint that could be done differently, and I'm going to let the pundits uh, work on that. Um, but I do think that um, the team composition is super important. I think that um, identifying uh, those who can work as a team and have experience under these types of conditions are very beneficial. Um, I, I think um, this whole rationing, there's, there's probably uh, something to say about um, a more formal rationing process, whether it's uh, ventilators uh, or uh, dialysis machines or transferring uh, folks. Uh, I think uh, those are really, you know, the top three. I mean, you can you can write a long list and nothing will get done. But I think if you have a top three, I mm -hmm. think those would, and you just work on those three for for the next thing because I think we're going to see something like this again soon. Yeah. Um. So you mentioned you know experience. Other than the experience you're getting right now, there's obviously new people constantly coming up and moving forward. Um. Do you think that you can get experience? through training like through your through you know your residencies your internships do you think being exposed to difficult situations or uh you know whether it be difficult patients or resource limited situations do you think there's any benefit to that i i think there's all kinds of benefit to that dennis um i think um you know, this military-civilian collaboration has so many opportunities, um, and um, and although uh, the civilian civilian world can impart uh, certain techniques and and uh, and ideas, uh, the military can can teach the civilian world an enormous amount, and I certainly have benefited from my experience uh, working with. Uh, with the special forces and, and the NSW and so forth, MARSOC. And, and uh, if you, if you listen and pay attention, you can't help but learn. And, uh, and I think we should take that training uh, to our trainees, residents and, and uh, fellows, um, surgery and non-surgical. I think everybody can benefit from that. You know, the stress is the stress. We all perceive it differently. Uh, but how do you deal with it, uh, and and you know how do you recognize it in others, and uh, and how do you develop that winning team is is so important, and uh, you know I've I've uh, I've learned a lot. I've made plenty of mistakes. Uh, I'd like to think that I've learned from those, um, and you know some of them are are uh, obvious and some of them are not so obvious, and. Um, this is just one of those opportunities where the lessons that I've learned have allowed me to, um, I think, make a difference. Uh, and at least that's the the feedback I'm getting. And uh, what is a good experience comes from bad, good, good decisions come from bad experience. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Um, I think 
I think uh, this is this has uh, just been a, a great opportunity for me, and I think smarter people than me could have you know could have done a, a great job as well. Well, I mean that's a given, right? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. <laughs> You're so good to me. <laughs> no. <laughs> but um <laughs> no i i definitely i hope that the uh, collaboration between the civilian and military um definitely moves forward uh especially with uh, i know the SOMC, they have a, a group of guys in new york but one of the field hospitals out there yeah um but i hope that's an instance that will kind of propagate through the country as this thing as it progresses and New York tamps down and somewhere else, either it's Detroit or or New Orleans or, or wherever this the next hot spot is. Um, I hope this is something that continues and that, you know, the entire country sees some kind of benefit. I know the military is gonna benefit from it. One through experience, two through just talking to somebody who does this all the time or treats patients all the time. Um, I think it's going to do nothing but help and elevate everybody. Dennis, it is so glaringly obvious uh, that I hope people pay attention. So uh, what we're seeing, uh, because there are no elective surgeries going on right now, those of us who are uh, uh, not just trauma trained, uh, but uh, board certified in surgical critical care. There's a whole bunch of us surgeons doing critical care call. Mm -hmm. And of those, uh, some of them uh, have military experience. And um, that's kind of one of the, it's kind of one of the nods uh, um, that uh, you get when you're working with another person who understands a little bit or a lot about the military. Um, we work as a team so much more easily so uh, even though, you know, as a civilian, uh, I, I, I'm largely what treated or accepted because mm -hmm. of the years I've spent with you guys. And, uh, and that kind of um, uh, mentality works so much better. So when there is a guy, you know, I'm working right now with a wonderful guy who, uh, you know, was a force recon guy and uh, ended up going to medical school and, and now he's a surgical intensivist. And when we're on together and we're covering, because uh, we had, uh, you know, 47 uh, basic, 47 ICU patients together. Okay. And uh, we had to cover each other. And even though our roles were kind of distinct as who's covering what floor and what patients, uh -huh. uh, we took care of each other's patients uh, for nights on end uh, and we never stepped on each other's toes. If he was running a code, I would support him. If I was running a code, he would support me. And many times we were running codes on each other's patients. And there was never this kind of like territorial behavior that I've seen in, in, in the civilian world where it's my patient, I'm running it. It's just, how do we get this patient through it? How do we get our nurses through it? Who's going to call the family? How do we get our residents through it? And then how do we you know, deal with the situation after. And, uh, and, and folks who had the good experience of uh, being in the military, I think get that team concept. There, there's many folks who 
have never been on a team or or if they were they were on a dysfunctional team they don't they don't quite understand uh what it is to to be on that team it's it's you know surgery is kind of a in many ways an independent type uh practice uh trauma is probably the biggest uh kind of team um element of of surgery uh but even at that i've seen you know individuals uh put themselves and their reputations higher than than the team concept and and this is really it, there's just not a lot of room for that in a crisis and mm-hmm. and my guess is uh you and your your listeners understand that and would be hugely important in a in a crisis like this yeah um you know hopefully not not soon with another pandemic right. where we're going to have benefit for this but um i definitely yeah. hope that uh there'll be a a very um lengthy lessons learned um kind of review on uh on how how we could do this better going forward because it i mean it's inevitable something will happen either local or national um that's going to put a medical system to the test. So hopefully we can learn from this. Uh, one of the big things that I learned, um, and I, I shouldn't say I learned uh, because I knew this and I tried to anticipate it, but it still was a lesson learned, um, is communication. Mm-hmm. And by that, I'm going to share with you an experience I had. Uh, I, I sent you uh, this information previously, I believe. Mm. But... Um, but uh, we had a, we uh, ran out of chest tubes. Uh, right. You run out of all kinds of things during this crisis. Some are used well, some are not used well, uh, but you run out of things quickly. And the hospital ran out, well, I was told the hospital ran out of chest tubes. But a patient with attention pneumothorax, and, um, and although they had a IJ on, on that side, um, they didn't develop this tension until, or at least it wasn't identified for 24 hours later, and a chest x-ray that morning did not show it. So um, I, uh, I, I put in an ET tube and, uh, and I inflated the balloon and so forth. Uh, patient uh, did well and the, you know, the ner- everybody was kind of like amazed at this uh, procedure and uh, adaption of what, what you know, normally would be a chest tube. So, um, seeing their reaction i tried to make sure that everybody understood that this works there's nothing wrong with it nothing has to change the chest x-ray shows the lung inflated uh at the uh, sign out i did the same thing i let the residents know i let the attending know and um and then the next uh so i went you know i went back to uh back home whatever uh came back and lo and behold um the uh i saw a surgery resident in there putting in a chest tube where uh on the same side of the chest and there's no more et tube and yeah. i said what's going on and they the surgery resident said uh, they asked me to change the, the tube and i said oh why and he said well it was a endotracheal tube and i said i know i put it in there it was working. What what 
you know, what changed, what happened? And he said, I don't know, I was just told to do it. And I said, okay. And they tell you why? And he said, I'm an intern. I just, <laughs> I was like, okay, fair enough. You know, just, just so you know that, you know, these things work. And, and if you, if you were to tell me that something, you know, went wrong or something like that, I think that's great. I think, you know, something I can learn. Yeah. Uh, we don't do this routinely. Uh, but, uh, but so far, everything I see and saw, uh, you know, said that the ET tube was working. And maybe it was the comfort level of somebody looking at a ET tube instead of a chest tube. I don't know. But to this day, I still don't know why he had to change it. I think they did it because they were just used to looking at chest tubes. Yeah. So uh, you can communicate. You can plan. You can do all as much as you want and there still will be uh folks who feel like they um need to see common things in these patients and uh and i think uh you know like i said the communication and education with each uh novelty or adaptation to what we're normally uh used to is re is really important mm -hmm. it is it is well thank you mark i really appreciate it Thank you, Dennis. It's always a pleasure to work with you guys. All right. All right. Have a good one. Take care. Bye-bye. That's it for today's podcast. Be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Out. Great boy is waiting there for you.